Let's open our Bibles again to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We are studying this book verse by verse, and we've come to a passage that brings up a subject that has caused us to stop and do some study with, and that is what it means to walk, to live in sobriety, in sober-mindedness, as opposed to being drunk, because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul prohibits in this text. Let me read the paragraph in which we find our text. Ephesians 5, verse 17, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another, in the fear of Christ. The Bible possesses attributes, characteristics. Some of them are supernatural characteristics. For example, the Bible is inspired, literally breathed out by God. So what it says is to be understood as the very word and words of God. The Bible is inerrant which means it contains no errors in theology, in fact. The Bible is infallible, which means it's totally dependable because it's incapable of error. The Bible is perspicuous, which is a big word that's not very clear that means it's clear. All that God says and all that God communicates is understandable, is intelligible. The Bible is necessary What we mean by that is that the Bible, we need the Bible to know who God is, what God requires, and know the only path to heaven because it alone lays it out. But there's another characteristic or attribute of Scripture that I think is in full focus in the text and in the subject we'll be addressing this morning, and that is the Bible is sufficient, meaning that the Bible is adequate to inform and to instruct a Christian to live life to the fullest to obey God in every detail, and to handle any trial or any trouble. It is a sufficient document. Nothing in life can come at us to which the Bible doesn't address and give us instruction. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse, three, verse 2 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace come to us in the knowledge of God and Jesus seeing that His divine power has granted to us, listen to this word, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. So we have everything sufficient for every part of living life and being godly, everything given to us through the true knowledge of Him who called us. And the place we find that knowledge is the revelation of God, which is the Bible, His Word. We say it every week in our mission statement. We exist to magnify God, spread a passion for His glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every, the sufficiency, 
every dimension of life as regulated by the Word of God. So when we come to tough issues as followers of Jesus Christ, all of us can have confidence. As a believer, you can have surety and sure confidence that God has provided for us everything we need to be godly and to make good and right decisions. This word, this Bible, is sufficient to live life, to live it to the fullest, to enjoy life, and also to be godly, to please God in every respect He demands. Let's apply that to the tricky subject of social drinking, drinking alcohol. If you're a guest with us, we don't talk about these things every week, but it came up in the text, so we're turning our attention to it. I always wonder sometimes when we're in these, these sermons, if someone shows up for the first time, they leave thinking, that was interesting. But we are in the study of Ephesians, and we've come to the issue of drinking, specifically drunkenness and drinking that doesn't lead to drunkenness. How do we think about those things biblically? What should a Christian do about alcohol? How should a Christian think about alcohol? What about expanded into any intoxicating substance? For example, is it okay not to be drunk with wine, but okay to be drunk with whiskey? Is it okay not to be drunk with wine? We should avoid that, but you can be high on marijuana. Or is this talking about any kind of intoxicating substance, which is what we concluded Paul is addressing in our study last week? Paul raises the subject in Ephesians 5.18 about intoxication. It's a simple command, and it's this. Do not get drunk with wine because that's excess. That's dissipation. That's a lack of self-control. Last week, we looked intently at what the Bible says about drunkenness, and it says a lot about getting drunk. And every time, it's don't do it. Don't drink to the point of drunkenness. But that leaves us with the question, what about drinking that does not progress to the point of drunkenness? Social drinking, as it were. So we're going to take a little detour from our study of Ephesians and expand out to let God's Word inform our thinking because it is sufficient to help us think this through. In the last decade, maybe decade and a half, I've noticed a, an increasing openness by Christians to what we would call social drinking. It's different than it used to be. Truth is, it's become a new normal. I've witnessed an increase, the openness to it, the participation in it, opinions about social drinking. And again, by social drinking, I mean drinking short of drunkenness, drunk, short of influence. Opinions range widely in the church. Opinions range widely about this in our own church. And my hope and prayer is that your convictions about how you think about this subject are rooted and regulated by the Word of God, by Scripture. The goal today is to not make this gray area black and white. I wish I could do that. I would write a book and make a lot of money. But it's to have our common goal to be what Paul says our goal is in Romans 14, verse 5, that we would be fully convinced in our own mind about these subjects. Interestingly, when he says be fully convinced, he was talking about participation in liberty and abstinence from liberty. That you be fully convinced and neither of them are necessarily wrong. 
So consequently, today we're going to have a good old-fashioned Bible study. You need to oil up the spines of your Bible. We'll be turning around, turning to several places in order to get a biblical perspective on drinking that goes less than intoxication, doesn't go into intoxication, social drinking. We need to flip some pages in our Bibles. Remember, this section that we're studying begins with chapter 5, verse 15, where it actually goes all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul says, be careful how you're living. Think about how you're living. Think about how you're walking, which is a euphemism for living. Have a philosophy of life. Know why you live the way you do. Know why you think the way you do. Know why you practice the way you live. Be wise. Careful. Not as an unwise person, but as a wise person. This is an issue to be navigated with wisdom. Not always yes and no's, black and whites, always is and nevers. Come to chapter 5, verse 18, and Paul is adding to his list and his instruction on how to walk wisely, how to live with redeeming every moment, and specifically, Look at verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And, and, it's connected to that. Don't be drunk with wine because that's excess. That's a lack of self-control or dissipation, but be filled or influenced by the Spirit. We'll say from the very beginning, only those who know the blood-bought purchase of their souls by Jesus Christ and His death, His resurrection, who become Christians can be Filled, or we'll study this in our next time, play ra'o, moved, influenced by the Spirit of God. I trust that you know the Lord Jesus and that He is the one you follow, and that's evidenced by being moved and motivated and, and, and influenced by the Spirit of God. It's interesting, as a contrast to that, He uses this illustration. Don't get drunk with wine. Don't be influenced by wine, and that's a parallel to being influenced by the Spirit. It has an effect on your thinking, an effect big and small, nuanced and profound on how you think and how you live. The apostle cites drunkenness here that's prohibited by God as a good example of the opposite of being moved or filled with the Spirit of God. That was simple enough, and we studied that in detail last week. We'll review it in just a moment. But what about drinking alcohol and not getting drunk? Does the Bible talk about that? Well, again, Christians who believe it is sin to drink can far too easily look judgmentally at those who believe it is liberty. It's okay to drink. And those who believe it's okay to drink can look judgmentally at those who abstain. And Paul addresses that in Romans 14. He says, neither of you should judge one another. If you are an abstainer, if you're a participant, you should not have judgment toward one another when it comes to Christian liberties. So my goal today is regardless of your personal convictions, and for the record, we have strong personal convictions on both sides of this decision in our church, in our body regardless of that personal conviction and practice about drinking, that you can express the spiritual maturity to see one another with the eyes of love and deference. Not difference, deference. You defer. You can trust that that person is operating under the control of the Spirit of God 
And if they're not, then you can challenge them on that. It's critical to our thoughts that our thinking, critical to our thinking rather, that our thoughts about drinking are rooted in Scripture, not in preference, not in background, not in what we like to hydrate ourselves with, but Scripture. So again, we're going to take a little detour from our study of Ephesians 5, 18 and drunkenness and expand the subject out to alcohol in general. I approach this with a great degree of fear, slight bit of anxiety, because the last time we did this in our study of, Ephesians, of Ecclesiastes, rather, having said this, a simple, given a simple sermon, I had some hear that sermon and say, you are far too easy on drink, drinking. You should tell people never to drink. And I had others saying, you are far too hard on drinking. Um, you, you should make sure that, that people know how to do it with, with wisdom. So we're going to try to thread the needle today. And I, I trust that God's word can trump any of my misunderstandings or, or inabilities to thread that needle in the way that God's word does perfectly. So a little review. We're looking specifically at... I'm going to need some help. Uh, Laura, I think uh, my PowerPoint's not working. At biblical wisdom and substances that can intoxicate. And we're giving 10 guiding principles, 10 guiding principles. We looked at the first last week. Number one, drunkenness is sinful. We're just going to touch on this because we looked at it very detailed last week. Drunkenness is sin. It's sinful. It's sinfulness. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is excess. That is dissipation. It's a lack of self-control. We looked at what it means to be drunk. And uh, remember we looked last week at the Cleveland Clinic's description of drunkenness that starts from 0.02 all the way to uh, a great degree of poisoning from alcohol. And, and we said that we can't really look at a blood alcohol content, a BAC, and say, well, that person's drunk and that person's not. Because four ounces of wine does something different to an uh, an 85-pound 85, 85 person than it does a 290-pound person. So we have to be careful with, with defining drunkenness outside of the Bible. What is drunkenness? It's really simple. It's control and influence. It's when a substance controls and influences your thinking and your behavior. The point Paul is driving to is that just as alcohol can control and influence a person's judgment and behavior... It should be the Holy Spirit who controls and influences a person's behavior. So if it's not controlling you, it's not, you're not in any way inebriated or intoxicated. If it's having a slight influence, that's intoxication biblically because any influence of the Spirit of God, slight and nuanced all the way profound, is still influence. And honestly, where we landed last week was that we can't define for you exactly what drunkenness is. You know when it has an influence on your thinking, your judgment, and your behavior that that is biblical drunkenness. Back to 517. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And the will of the Lord is and. So God does not will or want Drunkenness. He's not prohibiting. Let me just say this as clear as possible. Paul is saying, don't get drunk. Paul had the language to say, don't ever drink, and he didn't use that language. 
He said, don't get drunk. He's not prohibiting the drinking of wine. He's prohibiting getting drunk by the drinking of wine. And again, the reason he didn't talk about distilled beverages is they didn't have whiskey and vodka back then. The reason he didn't talk about marijuana is that wasn't in their access. The point is intoxication, not the substance itself. Wine, as we said last week, was a common drink in the first century. Paul is not saying don't drink wine. Notice the qualifier in the text. For that is excess, that is dissipation, that's a lack of self-control. And drunkenness is, again, I agree with this author that we read last week, drunkenness is the clouding or disruption by alcohol of any part of a person's mind so that it affects his faculties. A person is drunk to the extent that alcohol has restricted or modified any part of his thinking or acting. Drunkenness has many degrees, but it begins when it starts to interrupt the normal functions of the body and mind, end quote. So again, it influences judgment and behavior and threatens self-control. And we talked about that for the better part of an hour last week. It does raise the question, okay, what about enjoying an alcoholic beverage without getting drunk? Number two, drinking alcohol without getting drunk is not always sinful. It can be, but it's not always sinful according to Scripture. Let's begin where everyone begins. Jesus made wine, and he made really good wine. I love the story. John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana. This is the first of Jesus' miracles. Wedding in Cana of Galilee. Mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, that would have been a major social faux pas. This family could have suffered shame for generations because of that. The mother of Jesus said to Jesus, said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is not the way, the time for me to show who I am. In John chapter 13, when he's about to be betrayed, he says, my hour has come. Nonetheless, he said to his mother and to the servants, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots, big vats, set there for Jewish custom of purifying yourself, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots, they were for water, with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw out some and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter, the host, whose job was to understand hosting and and uh, uh, how to serve wine, when it was brought to him, the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, and the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, wait, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now." John says, this is the beginning of his signs, which Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Here's the point. Jesus made wine. 
he turned an inert substance, water, into wine, which was a living substance because as carbon bonds, he turned inert into life. That was the creation of life, as it were. He made wine, and it was good wine. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is perfect. The mere fact that he turned this water into good wine demonstrates that wine in and of itself is not bad. He doesn't make sinful bad stuff, evil stuff. Think about this. Paul told Timothy in uh, his letter in uh, 1 Timothy 5, very interesting. He says, 1 Timothy 5, 23, no longer drink water exclusively, only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. There's a medicinal purpose you can use this for, Timothy. But what's interesting is Timothy apparently had been abstaining. We don't know why. We can't guess. But Paul had to tell him, you probably ought to take some wine for your stomach. I don't know why Timothy had been abstaining, but Paul had to tell him to suspend that. And then there's the famous passage that lots of people who enjoy social drinking love to quote. Psalm 104, verse 15. Wine makes a man's heart glad. And I've heard people say, see, there it is. It makes you tipsy happy. Well, that's not what it says. It says it makes you glad. It doesn't say it makes you inebriated. And it doesn't intend for you to think that this means slightly intoxicated. It means it makes you happy to, to have some wine. We know that it's not drunkenness because that's forbidden. So what does it mean? Well, can I give you a simple kind of silly illustration? There are a few of us who once a year go on a, on a backcountry elk hunt. And we're back up in the woods for seven, eight days. And you're having purified water, sometimes a little slight hint of iodine taste, and it doesn't look real good. It's, you can purify it, but it's still brown and, and dehydrated meals. You come out of the woods, and we go down. There's a pizza place we go to. We order up some pizza, and I always get a Diet Dr. Pepper or a strong stain your teeth glass of iced tea. And after a week of having not great water, it makes me happy to have something that doesn't taste like that. That's what's going on in Psalm 104. He's not saying, oh, let's go get tipsy and I'm glad about it. No, it just makes you happy. And if you were drinking water from wells and the Jordan River, you wouldn't mind having that either. Wine was given by God as a blessing in the Old Testament. It wasn't always designated as bad. Deuteronomy 7.13, He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil. Your olive oil will increase. The blessing of God. Deuteronomy 11, the same thing. Deuteronomy 28, you shall plant and cultivate vineyards. New wine will be suspended from you as a judgment because you're not being blessed by God. Amos 9.14, in the coming kingdom, I will restore uh, the, the captivity of my people Israel. I'll give them new wine. Joel 2, Joel 2, uh, chapter 19, Joel 2, verse 19, Joel 2, verse 24. Their vats will overflow with new wine. It was a blessing. So let's be careful that even if you are of the ilk that says, I don't drink, I think it's bad, I stay away from it, I don't even drink NyQuil. If that's your conviction, 
just know that it was, it was seen as a blessing of God and the suspension of wine was seen as the judgment of God in the Older Testament. So the point should be clear that drinking wine short of drunkenness can be good and a blessing from God. Said another way, drinking alcohol without getting drunk is not always sinful. That's our point. We have to go on. Third, insight is not the only sight. Knowing this is not enough. In order to understand the next part of this study, we need to have some awareness of a liberty in the, in the Christian community in the first century that they were struggling with taking part in. By the way, a liberty or a freedom is an action that is within a Christian's freedom to do, but it's not a command to do it. It's merely an enjoyment. Some Christians, however, both then and now, did not have the freedom in their conscience to enjoy this liberty in the same way that others did. The example given was especially applicable when it came to eating meat that was offered to idols. Let me give you a little background on that. The local temples, the pagan temples, were also the local butchers. You would take, offer an animal to the, uh, to the, uh, the priest, who was also a butcher, and then they would turn around and on the back of the temple, they would sell that meat for people to eat. Perfectly good meat. In fact, it was the best meat because you had to offer the best of your animals to sacrifice. Paul describes this situation, this situation and discusses the reality that this meat was offered to idols, and he's very clear that there's no such thing as an idol, a false god. His point is that the decisions about the liberty to eat this meat were not based on knowledge, knowing that there's no real idol, so it wasn't really offered, and if it's a good ribeye, eat it. But it was rather based on love for others. Listen to what Paul says, and for this we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We know, we, we know that the truth is we know that there's only one God. He's going to explain that. There's no real idol, so this is, there's nothing superstitious that's really happening there. We all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, though, and love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Don't take your insight that there is no such thing as an idol so you're clear and free to drink anything or eat anything you want as a free pass. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Very clear theological statements. That's a rock. That's a piece of wood that they're worshiping. It's not real. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords in their minds, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things are all things, and we exist through Him. Here's the point. For the person who has the correct insight that there's no such thing as an idol they could eat that with freedom. Consequently, the meat offered to this imaginary idol is not an evil thing because it's not real. But there are people 
who are still bothered by that, and they have to be considered. So now we go to number four. Conscience is the issue, but <laughs> not your conscience. This is the principle of love. 1 Corinthians 8, let's keep reading. Verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. They're still superstitious. They still think that these idols uh, uh, somehow taint the meat. But being accustomed to the idol until now, they eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it or the better if we do. This is just an issue of freedom and, and uh, liberty. Here's the key, verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, the one who has a weak conscience. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, you know it's no big deal, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat Sacrifice, things sacrificed to idol, there is the key that's so misunderstood. A weaker brother is not someone who has a preference against the indulgence in a, in a liberty. A weaker brother is someone who sees a stronger brother participate in a liberty, then they themselves participate in liberty because of that example, and it violates their own conscience. That's the weaker brother. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, Paul says, if any food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I may not cause my brother to stumble. That's how serious he was about others' conscience. He just didn't want to even get in the way of it. Now, he gives us a, an interesting illustration I think worth looking at in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 30, excuse me, verse 23, 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful for me. I can participate in any liberty, but not all things are profitable. It's not always a good idea, he says. All things are lawful, but not all things build up or edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Don't pursue your liberty for your own pleasure, but always think about how it impacts your brother or your sister. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the Lord, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. In other words, you could eat and if it, don't make a big deal out of it. In other words, if, if, if you're having a ribeye, don't say, I got this at the local butcher from the back of the pagan temple. Just eat it. Always a ribeye, never a fillet, by the way. That's somewhere in the text. If one of the unbelievers, here's the situation, got an unbelieving friend, your neighbor, invites you and you want to go to dinner with them, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. If he bought the, the, the steak at the pagan temple and he's having you over for dinner and you're, 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 you're having dinner, don't say, where did you get this meat? Which idol was it offered to? Did you offer it? Was this? Just let it go. But, and there's a but in here. 
if someone asks you, apparently there's someone who's invited to dinner with you. And it was a weaker, more immature brother. Brother, if someone asks you, hey, come out, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it, he said, for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. You say, well, what about my conscience? No, no, no. Verse 29, I mean not your conscience, but the other man's, for why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? See what he's doing there? It's pretty simple. Can I put it in, the, in the, the world of drinking here for a second? Let's say you're invited over to an unbeliever's house and someone who's a new believer who has very strict um, uh, convictions about drinking. Maybe they came out of uh, a strong drinking background and they've just decided, I need, to, I need to put an end to this so they don't drink at all. And you're sitting there at the, at the table and the unbeliever offers you uh, something that's intoxicating, uh, wine, and before you can take a drink, the, the weaker, less mature Christian says, oh man, I, I, I can't do this. Are you going to do this? Now you're stuck. Do I offend the host or do I offend my brother? You know what Paul says? Offend the host. Offend the host. Because your brother's conscience, you are the keeper of. Footnote, it doesn't mean they stay weak forever, but it means in the moment of decision, you're making a decision to benefit them, to serve them. Paul was ever aware of his own example and how that could have influence on others' decisions, possibly cause them to violate their own conscience. So he could identify a real weaker brother. Let me say it again. A weaker brother is not just someone who doesn't like what you're doing. It's someone who might follow your example, and sin against their own conscience in participating in that freedom and that liberty. I have to keep moving. Number five, ministry is more important than pleasure. This is a quick point, but the Bible speaks to the reality that exercising one's freedom and liberty can tarnish their ability to provide a positive spiritual influence. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19, though I am free from all men, I made myself a slave to all so that I may win the more. Paul says when it comes to freedom, when it comes to liberty, I'm free to do it. But my freedom didn't matter. I was only thinking about these categories and how they would affect the people that I want to minister to. To the Jews, I became as a Jew that I may win the Jews. To the, those who are under the laws, those under the law, not being myself under the law so that I may win those who are under the law, to those who are without the law, as without the law, that, I, that being without the law of God, under the law of Christ, that I may win those who are without the law, those are the Gentiles, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. It's 1 Corinthians 9.23 so that I may become a fellow partaker in it. You know what Paul said? These are the, 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 the issue of the meat offered to idols. I can eat that with someone whose conscience isn't bothered by it. And if it bothers someone else's conscience, I won't. He could exercise wisdom in the moment because he read the room rightly. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom your liberty, into an opportunity for the flesh, 
but love, but through love serve one another. It's not about the taste of any liquid that you like. It's about how you can serve your brothers and sisters. Number six, abusing your liberties can disqualify you from spiritual service. Abusing liberties, freedoms can, not always, but can disqualify you from spiritual service. Like number five, Careless usage of Christian freedoms and liberties can discredit a person from spiritual leadership. We know this passage well, but did you know that this passage is in the context of using Christian freedom and Christian liberty? This is the end of that passage, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things that they do, and they do so to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I, Paul says, I run, I live in such a way, not without aim. I box in a way not as beating the air, but I discipline my body, context with respect to liberties, to make it my body, my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. In other words, he recognized that an inappropriate usage of Christian liberties and freedoms could cause a reproach and disqualify him from ministry. And he didn't want to be disqualified. After Nadab and Abihu's fall, by the way, in Leviticus chapter 10, Moses records God's command for spiritual leaders in Israel. This is interesting. Remember Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire. What you find out later is that involved in that strange fire offering was their drinking. Leviticus, in the same context, verse 9 of that chapter, God says, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. So in terms of their service to the Lord... God said the priests of Israel should abstain. Even today, 1 Timothy 3, speaking of elders and pastors, overseers in the church, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, pastor, elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, no rocks thrown at his character. Husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And then this little phrase, not addicted to wine. Literally given to wine. Literally has a reputation as someone who drinks. Doesn't say he doesn't, but that's not his reputation. Several years ago, I was with a group of men all in ministry in another city. Came time to order, what do you want to drink? And there was a beer ordered for every person at the table except one. And that was yours truly. No big deal. Well, I didn't think it was a big deal at all. So halfway through the meal when a couple of them began to make fun of me. 
And I just want to say, is this junior high? I mean, really? Are, are, we, are we really doing this? I was, I was terribly disappointed. I, I wasn't a weaker brother. They, they could have whatever they wanted to with their hamburger. But do you, do you really, out of love, make fun of someone who would abstain? Or should I have made fun of them for partaking? That was a hurtful dinner. Last year, our elders took several months to work through our convictions and practices regarding Christian liberties. It was one of the most fruitful and difficult issues we've ever had to wrestle with. And in a few minutes, I'll show you exactly where we landed. Number seven, we have to go quickly. Your nature is to lie to yourself about what you can handle. This is a principle we all have to own. Your nature is to lie to yourself. 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. So he doesn't fall. Our hearts will tell us that we can handle and endure more than we really can. Our hearts are liars. My heart is a liar. Our nature is to lie to our own hearts and to enjoy pleasure no matter what. And know this, the more you drink, the more your drinking will inhibit your inhibitions. It will sideline your inhibitions. Hosea 4.11, there's an occasion made there that association made that's throughout the Old Testament between sexual immorality and drinking, by the way. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away understanding, Hosea says. He groups together sexual sin and wine. Habakkuk, very important, says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. Again, there is a strict connection between drinking and sexual immorality. Sounds like a frat party. Let's get them drunk so we can cause them to reduce their inhibitions and do what we want to do. Drunkenness, sidelines, inhibitions, and where that drunkenness begins is a slippery, slippery slope. Be careful about what you hear yourself say to yourself. Number eight, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You, what do you mean? Just because you can drink and it's not necessarily a sin doesn't mean you must or you should. Paul said, and again, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, all things are lawful, acceptable, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. A few years ago, we spent two weeks going through Paul's teaching on this issue of liberty in Romans chapter 14. That's on our website if you'd like to go listen to those. It's a fuller treatment of this whole issue. But Paul summarizes his conclusion in Romans 14 verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. You say, ah, he's just talking about meat offering to idols. Really? Really? Listen. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Listen to this verse. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother 
stumbles. He expands it. Paul expands it beyond just the meat offered to idols and says, and this is a society in which drinking was far more prevalent than our own. Hey, it's good not to drink wine if it causes your brother to stumble. What does stumble mean? Not like it? That's not what it means. That he now, your brother actually follows your example, participates, and violates his conscience. That's the weaker brother. By the way, while we're there, can I just... point out in Romans 14 that Paul is very clear in his his principle. Verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Why again do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 13, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. I'm convinced that nothing is unclean of itself, but him who thinks anything is to be unclean, to call him, to to him it is unclean. In other words, consider. Don't judge each other. We have abstainers who can tend to say those who participate are wicked sinners and they're wrong. We have those who participate to say those who are abstainers are legalists. Both are wrong. Threading the needle means to be wise. Number nine, self-control is the controlling principle. This shouldn't surprise anyone. Paul says, exercise self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. In Galatians 5.23, you know where that line is, and if you don't, ask someone for help, but you should not ever drink to the point of losing any semblance of self-control. And then number number 10, Wisdom should frame, should frame rather. Wisdom should frame every decision that is questionable. Back to Ephesians 5, verse 15. Be careful how you live. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, since drinking and drunkenness drinking for drunkenness rather is out of the question, the only reason you're left with to drink is, are you ready for this? Because you like the taste. And my question is, is the taste of whatever you drink, you choose to drink this alcoholic, so wonderful that Dr. Pepper can't substitute? I I don't like Dr. Pepper. Diet Dr. Pepper. Or strong, unsweetened iced tea. I'm not trying to be legalistic about it, but Paul is saying it's, If you're not getting drunk, the only reason to drink it is because you like the taste. If it's just taste, what's the big deal? As I mentioned earlier, our elders worked through the wisdom of drinking over the course of several months last year, and I thought it might be helpful. This is not a dictate to talk to you about this. I have heard before, we all all heard and we kind of discussed the fact that everyone thinks that the elders have a contract that we sign. We don't. We don't have anything we sign. Uh, We have an agreement, and this is the gentleman's agreement that we came to after months of thinking through, praying about, and studying this issue. And I just want to read it to you. This is us. This is not a mandate. Let me tell you where where we landed for our own spiritual influence and leadership. Can I read that to you? We affirm, the MRCBC elders, we affirm that while drunkenness is clearly a sin, Ephesians 5.18, 
Drinking alcohol in moderation is not. As elders, we seek to be mature and wise leaders to and among our church bodies. Therefore, in situations where the consciences of other believers are threatened or the reputation of Christ before unbelievers is endangered, abstinence from alcohol may be necessary. From Romans 14, verses 14 to 21. Consequently, as leaders in our church, we are willing to lead by laying aside our liberty to drink alcohol for the sake of others and trust each other's wisdom, maturity, and discretion in exercising this liberty. End quote. It's so hard to thread that needle and not fall off in the ditch of being libertine or being legalists. So for the record, drinking alcohol short of drunkenness is not always a sin, but it can be. And judging those who drink short of drunkenness is sin as well. So this is such an amazing, wonderful issue for us to love one another, to defer, to listen and understand, to confront and to correct. If someone drinks to the point of it influencing them, that should be confronted. But if someone drinks less than that, maybe not. It's wisdom and discretion. And it's not as easy as always yes or always no. So I trust that the gospel, just as Paul said, the gospel will be your guide as to how to represent Christ and how to love your brother and your sister.